This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for tuning in, plugging in to your community of grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives weeknights at six here with Radioactive on KRCL. Coming up on the show, Eric P. Nelson is back with a Sundance review of We Need to Talk About Cosby, the new documentary series from comedian W. Kamau Bell of United Shades of America. I've also got the story of a short film, Hallelujah, a Tromedy, and another Sundance short, The Panola Project. Also on the show, a Utah mom, Allison Adams, is going to share her story of being caught between the warring factions on abortion and abortion law, especially here in the Beehive State. And to get us started, I Zoomed with Carrie Galloway, Planned Parenthood of Utah CEO, earlier today. Here's that conversation. The 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade happened over the weekend, as well as a pro-life march of about 3,000 people, according to ABC4 News reports. And here we sit in the beginning of a new Utah legislative session with trigger laws waiting on Supreme Court decisions. Carrie, before I share a story of one Utah woman and her need for an abortion due to the severe congenital deformities of her fetus, now she got caught up in the system. What is your temperature reading of what's going on? I'm extremely nervous, Laura. Um, my trust in the courts has diminished over the years, and I'm thoroughly confused with the rhetoric that we have going on. Let's just start with Saturday. The news reports say that it's not a woman's decision um, to choose to carry her pregnancy to term. But then I look at what's happening at our legislature and the mask mandates to save other people's lives. I'm just so confused, Laura. I, I thought I knew which way was up, which way was down, left and right. And um, I'm in a turmoil. The uh, anti-mandate folks use the rallying cry of my body, my choice. I'm guessing that's mm -hmm. what you're referring to. It would be one of the things, Laura. What are your thoughts here as a year away from 50 years of Roe v. Wade, it might not make it to 50? It might not. And I think my best hope right now is it'll just look different. I will be surprised that if the court eliminated a woman's right to choose. Remember the case in front of it right now, at least as it went to the Supreme Court in the beginning, was a 15-week ban. Um, saying that a state could um, intervene at 15 weeks. Um, I could see this court uh, granting that. I'm not sure which conniptions they'll go and do to grant it. But I really don't think even this court is ready to thoroughly eliminate the um, Roe decision. Which hinges on and the right I, to privacy, as I recall. It does. And we we are in such a flux in this country right now. I'm just holding on hope 
that um, they are not willing to totally disregard women completely and our bodies. Um, I, I just have to believe. I don't think that the uh, pro-life folks are ready for a post-Roe v. Wade era, too, because it's all hinged on this one fight as opposed to yes and. And I'm curious your thoughts on the overall landscape of women's health care in Utah. Let's just take one bill that we have on this session, Derek Kitchen's bill to expand Medicaid so that more women can have access to family planning services, birth control. Um, it has become a hardy perennial. And every session, the majority disregards the work that has been done on expanding Medicaid for women who need help in planning their families. Um, I just find it reprehensible that they will not go as far as expanding birth control services to women who are Medicaid. Any other bills that have caught your eye or your ear that have not yet come out? Well, I'm looking more at what we know. What we don't know, I'm shaking in my boots on Laura, but what we know, some things that we can support. Um, Daily Provost bill that passed last year for again, birth control for inmates is ended up being an only one year bill. And she has a bill that will lift the sunset on the year. A year is not enough time to look and see what kind of effect it has on the lives of women who are struggling. Um, there's a new bill that I'm pleased about, bereavement, Harper's bill, giving women who have a lost pregnancy um, with a, um, you know, some bereavement for grieving. And um, I'm kind of excited that someone has recognized that women menstruate, women of all ages menstruate, and that it's an expense, a lot of expense to live your life for a few days every month. And um, listen, B, who I'm usually um, not feeling too good about, has got a bill that recognizes something positive for women. And I'm thrilled and I can support it, Laura. Is that the period tax, removing yes, the tax on is. feminine hygiene products? Great. Coming it back is. again. Um, you and I have talked over the years a lot about good sex, safe sex, sex ed, and I'm reminded of a story that was published in partnership with the Tribune and Amplify Utah and Salt Lake Community College, and reporter Alexi Zollinger, new reporter, reported that why, on why some LGBTQ students in Utah say their health education is inadequate, and they're talking about more inclusive sex ed, including references to trans and intersex people. Yeah, they're people too, aren't they? Mm -hmm. We all, um, we're all sexual beings. Planned Parenthood will never give up. Um, using the old answers, speaking truth to power for young people to come away with the, the information they need to make good decisions about their sexuality, to know how to protect themselves and those they love. 
Um, but again, this legislature is off to a start scared of people whose sexuality may differ from theirs. And um, it's, it's a tough world that people are living in, Laura. Yes, lawmakers are okay wading into it when it's talking about youth sports and competition and who gets to play under what gender marker. But not so much in the age-old conversation about sex ed. And you have students themselves saying, hey, grown-ups, we need more education. So what is your advice to folks? You have a teen program, teen ambassadors and everything. We have a wonderful teen program. Um, Teen Council, we've got many of them in one in Summit County, one there's one that's um, happening in the um, Price area. And um, they're in the Salt Lake area too. Um, teens learning how to give good advice to their friends. Teens learning how to do leadership. And right along with Planned Parenthood community educators, they are learning how to do that in person and virtually. And um, that's what's so nice about Planned Parenthood, if I can brag for a minute. This um, pandemic has not um, caused trouble for us to provide care. We've figured out how to do virtual meetings. I think there were over 40 sex ed sessions um, scheduled with Planned Parenthood educators just in January, Laura. And for those that were in schools where kids were in school, we were going to them and on a dime, we could change back to virtual and still provide young people with the information they're asking for and they need, but within the law. We will put a link in tonight's show notes to Planned Parenthood and especially the teen councils that Carrie's talking about. But coming back full circle to where we started and the ongoing, never-ending 49-year-old abortion debate when it comes to Roe v. Wade. I mean, abortion has been around with us as long as there have been women. Um, And I'm thinking of the New York Times profile series that talks about pre-Roe v. Wade. And I've talked a lot about this with my my dad, who is an OBGYN and was the chief resident at D.C. General pre-Roe v. Wade during that change and what people don't know because it's been so long. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what terrifies me for my nieces and my, my friends' kids moving forward is if Roe v. Wade is effectively gutted, what that means for them and past his prologue. The Janes is up at the at Sundance, a documentary and a narrative about um, that era, and you remember it. I, when I was in high school, there was no Roe v. Wade. Um, you could go to New York. I lived in Wisconsin. Um, you helped your friends figure out how to make things work. Um, there are so so many people who have never lived with out this choice. And um, it's going to be a rude awakening and it's going to be hard on everyone. Um, And there is no reason for it. And there is no reason for not providing family planning services to everyone who needs it, regardless of how they pay. That's how to create 
strong families. That's how to create strong communities. Um, it continues to be the most, family planning continues to be the most important public health service that this world has ever seen. And um, we just act like dogs and turn our heads when we don't like to think about it. And um, it's pretty frustrating. Carrie, thanks for your time. Well, I'm sure we'll check in as, as things progress with the Supreme Court. What's the website for Planned Parenthood here in Utah? PlannedParenthood.org. Um, you can get to the national website and get to the local, or you can look at Planned Parenthood all over the world. We're there fighting for people to be able to live their best lives possible. Carrie Galloway of Planned Parenthood. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the nonprofit, and in particular, it's Teen Council, a great program for teens that want to get involved in the sex ed conversation in their own community. As we await the Supreme Court of the United States ruling in several cases that could upend or repeal Roe v. Wade, changes in the law over the years are already affecting Utahns. And tonight, a story from a Utah woman who, she's not political. She's just a mom who suffered a loss and is getting caught in the political machinations of our system. I had an opportunity to Zoom with her. Here's our conversation. Allison Adams, welcome to Radioactive. Thank you for being willing to share your story. Yeah, thanks for having me. This must be difficult, and I'm going to let this kind of spool out at your speed. Let's talk about what happened to you, your family, and your child, Owen. Um, so my husband, Justin, and I found out that we were pregnant with our first baby um, in May of last year, 2021. And um, at our 20-week anatomy scan, we found out that his arms and legs were four weeks behind where they should be. Um, so they were measuring 15, 16 weeks, and he was 20, 21 weeks. And his thigh bones were shaped like old-fashioned telephone receivers. And his ribs weren't connecting in the middle. Um, and so the doctors, um, our specialists that we were talking to, said it could be a few things. And to get a for sure answer as to what it was, we did an amniocentesis test that day, which is where they stick the needle into the uterus and pull out amniotic fluid and run it for a test. But we weren't going to be able to get those test results back for at least two weeks. And they basically told us that from what they were seeing, they thought it was the natophoric dysplasia type one, which is a lethal condition. Every baby that has it dies from it. Um, and so he would have basically been born if we went full term, choked on air, suffocated and died um, right in front of us within minutes or hours of being born. Um, and so with that in mind, they kind of braced us for the worst, but said we wouldn't know for sure what his condition was until the test results came back. And so that was an agonizing two weeks. We researched, we, um, we, yeah, we researched, we talked to specialists. We were constantly on the phone with our genetic counselor and then the test results came back and he came back positive for the natophoric dysplasia type one. Um, and after that, we basically just had to choose what we were gonna do. Um, we, we could go full term and have him die in our arms and struggle for his only moments of life. Or we could um, have me be induced early at around, we were about 23 weeks at this point um, and he would still die. Um, or we could terminate in Utah um, but the termination laws here are pretty um, strict with how we view abortion in the state. Yes, as 
the uh, law has been chipped away at over the years in the fight between uh, pro-life and pro-choice, it's put families like yours right in the middle of all this. And you found out some truths that you emailed me. Let's talk about this first truth that Owen's termination would not be covered by insurance because it counted as a late-term abortion. I'm guessing that was a slap in the face. It was. Um, we, the doctors prepped us ahead of time and said that it probably wouldn't be covered um, just because of the way that Utah is. And I'm a state employee. So my insurance is through the state insurance. And um, I actually ended up messaging one of the directors of PEHP, the state insurance company, and asked him, like, is this something that you guys could change for future mothers in my situation? And he said that, unfortunately, no, he had no power over it because the legislature um, determines how that's handled through state insurance. A medical procedure, not covered, and again, caught in between the laws. A second truth was that under Utah code, fetuses, babies, are only allowed birth certificates if they are born or naturally miscarried past 20 weeks. So an unintended consequence of the way they wrote this law, not imagining the the medically real factor of your child. Yeah, and the irony of all of it is the, um, I think it was the abortion legislation that was passed last year, the termination legislation that was passed. Um, there's a clause in it where babies and fetuses that are terminated are now required to be sent to a mortuary to be to have their remains um, cared for. So they can either be cremated or buried. And then the parents pick to do what they want from that point on. So they're basically telling us like your baby existed. He was a person. You have to bury him. But he didn't exist enough to have a birth certificate because of how he died, because they didn't want to support the choice that we made, I'm guessing. And then lastly, a final truth that the state of Utah does not allow for fetal heartbeats to be stopped prior to a termination as many other states allow. This didn't even enter my mind when I remember hearing about this change in Utah law. How did you deal with that? Um, This was probably the most heartbreaking thing we found out in the whole process because from the beginning when we first were given the, the option to terminate, we were told by our doctors that like terminating fetal heartbeats was a common practice for terminations. But our doctors were from the East Coast um, and they're working here in Utah, so they don't have a ton of experience with what we do here. And um, we found out after deciding to terminate Owen that it was like a few days after we found out that um, Utah law doesn't allow babies to be to have their fetal heart rates stopped before they're terminated. So with all these arguments where they're talking about protecting life, they're okay with these little babies being taken out basically I mean, they're under anesthesia and they say that that crosses the placenta, but these babies are alive when they do that because we don't have that in place. You've been blogging about your story, your family's journey. What is it that you want people to know? Because this is not the normal abortion story, I would say, that that I've shared with listeners in the past. It's a very unique circumstance and not one that lawmakers in crafting law could have foreseen, but here's your story. Here you are saying to them, look what the politics of this has done in this particular situation. I think the biggest thing I want people to take away from this is when we do, when we, when we form abortion legislation, we're making these little fetuses and babies into political bargaining chips. 
And not every case is the same. Not every termination or abortion is because a family didn't want that baby or because there was a situation where they just couldn't have the baby. We wanted our baby. We loved our baby. And with the choice we made was educated and informed and made with love because we didn't want him to suffer. And I feel like a lot of the laws that we have in Utah right now are meant to punish parents who choose to do this because they see it as a selfish act done by lazy people. And we were not lazy about any element of this, any aspect of it. We did our due diligence. We got the testing. We talked to counselors. We did everything we could to ensure that we were making the right choice and that our baby wouldn't have, he, he didn't, he never had a shot at life. That's what all the doctors told us. No matter what we did, he would have died. And we did what we had to. And you made the and informed even, choice with your doctor about what was best for you. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say like, well, I was really pro-life until I read what you wrote. Because I think people don't realize that abortion and late term, um, I guess, late term abortion terminations, it's not black and white. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere that less than 1% of all abortions are after 20 weeks. And it's like when you've been pregnant with a baby for that long, you're not aborting or terminating because you don't want the baby anymore. Like you were planning for that baby. You gave it a name. So and I you, think people forget about that. I think they do. So have you reached out to your elected representatives to share your story? Yeah. So I reached out to Senator McKay. Um, I haven't heard back from him. He covers my area. And he also was one of the um, legislators behind some of the abortion legislation last, last year, which is kind of ironic. But um, I haven't heard back from him or from Candace Perucci. They're both over my district. Um, but I have reached out to other senators and representatives, and I've heard back from one. So out of the five that I messaged, I've heard back from one. So, What do you want them to do? Is it just to be aware of your story, or do you have uh, an action that you'd like them to take? I think I'd like them to be aware, first and foremost. But the, the biggest thing that I'd like is to prevent other mothers and fathers and um, unborn children fetuses, babies, whatever, whatever people would like to call them in this situation to, to be able to, to have the respect and dignity that the situation deserves for parents to be able to make informed choices for, for fetal heartbeats to be stopped in Utah. So those poor babies, we, we don't know what they're going through when they're being terminated. And the law that we have it right now isn't protecting life. It's using these babies as, as a, a pawn and it's not doing what they say it's doing. We need to make it more humane. We need to make it more open. And we need to realize that abortion in Utah isn't a black and white issue. We'll put a link in the show notes so folks can connect to your blog and read more about your story and what you've gone through. How is your family today? And what is your outlook on, on parenthood moving forward, given the situation? Um, well, I'm going to therapy and my husband has been super supportive. Um, Owen was our first baby and he'll always be our first baby. Um, we're hoping to have another child soon whenever, whenever it happens and we're hoping for the best. But um, obviously now I think we've gone through the worst case scenario in our first pregnancy. So all we know is loss, but we feel pretty hopeful. I don't even know how to end such an interview where you've shared such a personal story and all my best to your family. Thank you so much. Allison Adams. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Allison's blog. And my thanks to Allison, who reached out and said, I've got a story to share, and 
she was willing to lay it all out, what her family's going through when it comes to the issue of abortion. When we come back, we'll dig into Sundance with Eric P. Nelson from his Sundance screening shed, plus Hallelujah, a Tromedy, and The Panola Project, two shorts from the film festival. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive on KRCL. The Utah Black Artists Collective connects and showcases artists of color throughout the state. The nonprofit also offers a mentorship program for young artists of color. More details at ublack.org. That's U-B-L-A-C dot org. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The all-virtual 2022 Slamdance Film Festival will be held from January 27th to February 6th. Offering more than 100 new independent films from around the world and streaming on the new Slamdance channel. Passes and information at slamdancechannel.com. KRCL, your community connection since 1979. This is Radioactive. Thanks for listening. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! Followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm, Michelle's Night Train at 10.30. And then start your brand new day each and every weekday morning with John Florence at 6 a.m. You can find the last two weeks of any show on demand at krcl.org. Just click on the Programs tab and find the show you want to check out, including Radioactive. The rest of our show is a Sundance report. I've got two shorts, Hallelujah, a Tromedy, and The Panola Project. And Eric P. Nelson's got a review of the new Cosby documentary from W. Kamau Bell. But we start with the latest news out of Sundance, which earlier today announced the recipient of the 2022 Medita Mita Fellowship, an annual fellowship named in honor of the late Maori filmmaker Medita Mita and designed for indigenous women-identified artists striving to direct a feature film. And this year, the recipient is Fox Maxi. I Zoom called Fox and Adam Perone, Interim Director of Indigenous Programming at Sundance. Merit Smith, she was the first uh, Maori filmmaker, woman filmmaker to solely direct a film, a uh, feature film uh, on her own in New Zealand. Um, you know, a lot of people consider her to be sort of one of the, um, the matriarchs of indigenous cinema um, internationally as well too. Um, I was lucky enough to get to know her um, a little bit. I want to say it was around 2009, um, 2010. And, um, you know, she, she had a very um, fierce spirit, very independent in terms of how she made her films and, um, you know, how she involved her community and, you know, and who she made her films for, which were her community and other indigenous uh, communities as well. So, um, yeah, that um, sort of within that spirit and really just sort of honor her legacy and, and, um, and you know our relationship that we had to her. She was our um, artistic director of our lab for um, a few years as well. Um, you know we we put together this fellowship back in um, twenty I believe it was twenty fifteen was the the launch of it um, to really support you know indigenous uh, filmmakers that are women that are making their first feature film. Um, so it's um, you know it comes with a grant um, as well as a, a year a year long worth of uh, of mentorship. Um, and yeah, and, you know, I think we've had, um, a number of different, um, artists that have come through that program and, um, you know, it's again, too, we're, we're super proud to be keeping her, her legacy, um, and re reinforcing her legacy through, through Sundance through that. So, so glad to talk with the two of you today. And so earlier today you were recognized and can you give us a bit of your background, Fox? 
Yeah, so I'm uh, Ipai and Peomkuichum. So what does this mean for your next steps as a filmmaker? What do you what do you have on deck? What are you hoping to do with the added leverage of this? Uh, so I am making my first feature film. It's called Watertight. And it's about suicide and mental health. And I never directed a feature film before. So this is huge, like really, really crazy to have support from a bunch of people who just want to see me do my thing, which is, you know, a long time coming. I think I, I really love filmmaking. I film every day with my phone. And um, it's just something that heals me. So to be able to get the chance to make this film, I've been sitting on it for a couple of years. Um, it actually started as a, a homework assignment at the Institute of American Indian Arts in New Mexico. And then I kind of figured, you know what, let me just make this into a bigger project. It means so much to me. And it's definitely weaving my personal story with a bunch of other voices and talking to people in my community, my family, my friends um, all over the U.S. from different Native communities about mental health and their journeys and um the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. So I'm just really excited and grateful. That power to pass the microphone or to train the lens on people who are ready to share their stories is so powerful and, and important. Have you found anyone reluctant in your community? Because it's very specific to uh, the Native American community. Not really. I think the biggest challenge is getting people to be comfortable in front of the camera more so I think people like the idea of being in front of the camera we're all filmed all the time now right yeah exactly but I think the comfort level is something that I'm working on and I just that's really important to me I want to make sure everyone feels like it's more of a conversation than a interview I guess um and I I've done a couple um, interviews with friends from school and it went really well. I don't think, um, I think my film approach is something that I keep working on, but it is really, um, it's really interesting to see people open up and support each other in the conversation. It's almost as if like a group, healing moment is on camera so the camera is almost not really that important it's just kind of getting over that first hump of people being like oh I don't want to say something stupid or I don't want to look bad or whatever it is where can people catch up with you online follow your work if there's any GoFundMes pitch in yeah I have a website it's called civicfilms.org And there's a whole informational page about the film and how you can support. And, um, you know, I also have Instagram, Fox Maxi, and the A is a four. So we will put all those links in the show notes. And when you're ready to to, uh, start screening the film, we'd love to have you back and share that news, okay? Hopefully it'll be at Sundance next year, right? 
Yes, that would be badass. And Adam, how can people stay in touch with Sundance, especially on the Indigenous program? Yeah, uh, you know, definitely through the Sundance website. Um, our program has a page on there in particular. Um, you know, we also have, um, I think if you follow hashtag indigenous film, um, there's a number of our, um, you know, our different announcements or um, things for um, you know, upcoming opportunities to apply for. All the same thing through the Sundance, um, the, the Sundance uh, social media accounts as well, too. Adam Ferrone, Indigenous Programs Interim Director at Sundance Institute, and Fox Maxey, the recipient of the 2022 Merita Mita Fellowship for Indigenous Women Identified Artists Striving to Direct a Feature Film. All those links to follow the Indigenous Programs and Fox Maxey in tonight's show notes. And now, a Sundance update and review from Eric P. Nelson, part of the radioactive Sundance coverage team. He's been talking about it for a while, and he finally saw it. And that is, we need to talk about Cosby. Kamau Bell's documentary, Wrestling with the Legacy of Bill Cosby. It's going to be on Showtime soon. Here's Eric P. Nelson. There were three episodes. It starts with like a long one. So it's about four hours worth of content. We need to talk about Cosby. See, look, I mean, so many people can even mimic his his timing and what he was known for in his delivery. So give it to us straight. Uh, First off, I mean, it was it was a fantastic documentary. Um, Kamal Bell kind of states in there. He's like, first, I'm a a stand up. So Cosby is huge. um, But I felt like I as a stand up. I've come to be known as the, the person that has difficult conversations. Oh, and he's a black stand-up comedian, yes, too. Yes, cor- correct, yeah. And and he's got a lot of shows, and he talks about a lot of issues. He's got his television show, United Shades, and he has difficult conversations. Bill Cosby had been one of my heroes. I'm a black man, stand-up comic. I was born in the 70s. But this... More trouble for Bill Cosby. The accusations just keep coming in. This was complicated. How do we talk about Bill Cosby? Uh-uh. It's complex, Kamal, you know? Bill Cosby was our teacher. Kind of center of morality all throughout his career. Made my grandmother laugh, made everybody in the house laugh. You can't speak about Black America in the 20th century and not talk about Bill Cosby. And if anybody was going to make this this documentary, Kamal Bell was the person to do it. Because it is a difficult Uh conversation because so many people have those relationships with bill cosby and bill cosby after watching this did that on on purpose he, he cultivated persona yeah. and it it it, it i mean it, it's kind of like four four hours it starts with his early how he got into everything acting comedy into kind of the the old angry um grandpa that kind of he became um, and it was just so many, I've got like a hundred different, uh, little voice notes on my phone of just tidbits of everything. I'm trying to write this review and it's, and it's hard because it is just so much information. And, and one thing that I, that I pulled from it, um, there's a lot of people that, that talk in it, a lot of professors, a lot of actors, a lot of people that were in Cosby's orbit. Um, and, and someone said, 
a lot of people are looking at Bill Cosby as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And someone pointed out it's it's kind of he was just a Mr. Hyde. Like there wasn't the Dr. Jekyll side. There wasn't the good side. It was all too to to facilitate those acts. What's that? Facilitate Mr. Hyde. What he was going, yeah, yeah, and and the fact that it was um, the accurate accusations and everything, it goes back to the '60s. From the very beginning of Bill Cosby's career, there are accusations of um, sexual assault, and it's been known for years, it seems. Mm-hmm. And then the Hannibal Buress stand-up comedy, um, he did a little bit. Um, in 2014, and it just happened to be the the time of viral videos, and that was kind of the spark that just all of a sudden everybody was talking about it and publicly instead uh, of privately. Yeah, and and it went. I think it was an interview. Someone was talking to Seth Meyers, like nobody knew about it, and then everybody knew about it. Yeah, well, and but Kamal- Bill kept going. He, he went on tour that year. He kept he had a deal with NBC to do a new Cosby show. So people were still out promoting Bill Cosby when all of these accusations were just out there. And I was talking with uh, someone about like the Michael da- the Michael Jackson documentary. There are two victims that that speak in that documentary. This Cosby one, there are. 20, 30 victims that are all telling variations of the same story of, of, of what happened. And it is just, it's hard to listen to, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it's very good. I, I'm excited for it to get to everybody, everybody to see this and to have the conversation. Well, and two things that I've, <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. So thank yeah. you for, for your review, but um, from the trailers and from conversations I've seen around this in the press, one, Kamau Bell is worried that it's going to end his career. <laughs> and two, <laughs> over the course of making the film and its debuting here, the series rather, and debuting here at Sundance and then on to Showtime, Bill Cosby has been released. He's been free. That was the, the last day of shooting their documentary. Kamau Bell's phone went nuts and Bill Cosby got released on their last day of filming. So then that changes everything. And it is in and Bill Cosby is known to go after people that speak out against him. So it'll be interesting. What will Bill Cosby have a response to this? I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it was. Yeah, it, it was hard. It was hard to watch. And, and Kamal Bell knew going into it, like people have such such relationships with, with Bill Cosby as. And someone else in, in the in the documentary stated, like he was America's dad, but America has a rape problem, so America's dad can have a, a rape problem, a sexual assault problem. And it's like just because he's America's dad, that doesn't mean these horrendous things aren't aren't true and aren't a part of the bigger conversation. Eric P. Nelson with his review of We Need to Talk About Cosby, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Go to krcl.org and hit that Sundance tab for more from Eric and the rest of our radioactive team. 
that's covering the film festival. I've got something for you now. The first festival appearance from new production entity, Black Magic Content. And one of the short films that's premiering at Sundance, produced by Duran Jones, written and directed by Victor Gabriel, it's called Hallelujah, billed as a tromedy and a beguiling clash between darkness and light. After being stuck with the guardianship of their annoying bookworm nephew, two brothers in Compton, California, must decide if they are willing to take on the responsibility of becoming his guardians. Who's going to take care of us, Shetty? We're out of cereal and milk. Lila has a school project due. Who's going to take care of us? Who? Tell me about Hallelujah, Victor. We're going to start with you, writer-director, a dramedy. And this really comes from your your life, but uh, turning it into a dramedy for for everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us where the story starts. Well, logistically, um, we had, I was working on a feature, I was working on a feature script for, um, you know, just, I wrote a feature script, and feature script was pretty good, Um, Duran read it, Um, he was like, well, we should do something with it, and then I ended up getting representation, and after I got representation, I was like, well, let's go make this film, but, you know, I'm a new, I'm I'm new, they're like, you need, like, a short film, (laughs) so... (laughs) So we need to do something, you know. So we basically re- reverse engineered, and I just came with a proof of concept short film. So short um, short films in Sundance lead to bigger things. So you're hoping to yes. actually go on to make the incredible heist of Hallelujah Jones one day. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. And the short film is much different than the feature is. The short film, the short film is about the two brothers who are taking care of this, who are taking care of this kid who is a uh, nerd, he's a bookworm, bookworm kid is in Compton, California, but like through inexplicable circumstances, the uh, two brothers, uncles of, of the child called Hallelujah, have to figure out, are we gonna take on this, um, the role of being caretakers? They don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to at all. Like, nah, we're not doing this. So, and that's basically, that's basically like the arc of the short film, where the feature is just more about the kid. The feature is more about the kid, the feature him as a kid. Um, we shot it in my backyard, in my little in my little backyard, because we didn't have no money. So, I just, <laughs> so I just figured, I just figured it's gonna be in Compton anyways. We'll just shoot it in my backyard and call it a night. And then also my neighbor's front yard. Um, my my Miss Louise's name, Miss Louise. She's my neighbor, and she let us use her front yard and then use my backyard. And you got to do a red movie. carpet for them, a virtual red carpet <laughs> for them. Listen, listen, I would love to. Hopefully, we might try to try and do like an LA screening. You know, we try to do LA screening somewhere. Um, but yeah, and it just re- in terms of in terms of content, it comes. I lost a lot of people. I've lost a brother. I've lost an uncle. I've lost, a lot of us have lost people. I've lost some people to um, gang violence and um, just death. Though I would say I, the short film is not really about gang violence, but it is about grief it is it is about grief it's just that's just one of the this is one of the um ways in which ways in which um the family's experiencing grief but i tried to do it in such a way that was very specific but also just sort of like universal to people losing to people losing somebody who they love you know whatever horrible whatever horrible means but also knowing that we tend to laugh about dark things so yeah and you 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 said that you've lost folks in fact Aside from filmmaking, you hold an MA in clinical psychology. You work as a marriage yep. and family therapist with survivors of trauma. Thank you, thank you Laura. I feel you. Thank you, Nancy. 
talk about people. I'm not mad, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> top me up. Top me up. Top me up, Lord. Top me up. I love you. Top me up. And you work you with survivors of trauma in Compton Watson, South Central LA. But like you said, it's a traumedy about black men experiencing trauma, grief, yep. but laughter and, and humor. So uh, yeah. perhaps a, a different window into that experience um, than we would have gotten 10, even 10 years ago. For sure, for sure. I mean, I was told to Randy that all the things that have traumatically happened to me, I, I, when I was a kid, I laughed about it, but as an adult, I'm like super serious about it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But as a kid, kids don't, kids don't understand the like slower socioeconomic context and the, <laughs> and the big fancy words that explain why oppression exists in America. You know, they just know like, oh, it's happening. <laughs> so, um, and I think that I think I, I'm trying to find that place where I, I used to laugh at things which are really, really dark, right? And I think I sort of like found some of that again, found some of it. So, Duran, I wanted to talk a bit about you and uh, as the producer and also a content principal for Black Magic. This is uh, this film is part of a slate of films up at, at Sundance for your company. And I'm just kind of curious about that, about film and um, its representational ability for a broad swath of folks. Yeah, I think um, I think it's important. It's it's important to for us to represent ourselves in a larger global context, and and film and music and entertainment is is one of the key ways that we do that. But I think for me, and in terms of the company and and what I want the company to be, um, it's it's a safe place. It's a place where people like Vic and myself and and some of the other people that I'm working with, like David Arantes and um, some of the other writers I work with, is just. It, we need to have ownership of these stories. You know, too often we are having to take the trauma that we have and elicit them in certain ways for the approval of other people to check all the boxes um, to get the financing that we want. Um, so it's my, my, my hope that this company will one day turn into something that can fund these ideas in a way that um, the creative can, can maintain that control. Um, Vic is a very special voice, and I think that that voice needs to be protected in terms of what's coming out of it and, and where it's supposed to go. Um, and not that I'm putting on my cape to, to save Vic at all. As you can tell, you don't need anybody to save him at all. Um, but but it's, I want to be in support of that, you know, and I, I want him to know that I'm here and I want other artists to know that I'm here uh, for us to be able to tell these stories in the ways that we want to tell them, in the ways that our community demand that we tell them. because. Nobody's harsher on us than ourselves when it comes time to telling the story right. So we well, got to be accountable. And in support that. of that, you you know the the film topic itself is about that. It sounds like Victor, uh, black men supporting each other. It's a comedy. Yeah. There's lots of comedy in there, uh, <laughs> but yeah, at the heart sure. of it's about black men figuring that out. You're right, one hundred percent. So how do we get this next film made? The Incredible Heist of Hallelujah Jones, because I want to see that. And uh, is there a website where folks can go? Do you can do any crowdfunding? Not yet. We're working on it. Um, right now, we're talking to uh, whoever wants to talk to us about the project through the Sundance Lab. We were able to talk to quite a few production companies that have shown some interest. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're hoping we can be the pretty girls at the ball right now. And, and people will come and talk to us the, you know, the way we're expecting. And then we'll, we'll take it from there. Um, we'll both talk to Vic's agent and team and um, manager and, and I'll do the same with my company and, and our co-producer Cody Chubb and we'll figure it out. 
Um, but for now, it's about maintaining, you know, the truth and the honesty of the story as much as possible um, before other hands get in the pot because that gets a little messy. Yeah. So, Duran, how was the Sundance Labs experience? It was it was great. I think I'll say through that experience, because this is us doing this uh, feature and this short was really the first time Victor and I got a chance to work together. And I think um, through the lab, we really started to realize what we were talking about earlier, which is that power of manifestation and how some of the things that we talked about when we first started talking about this short are now coming into fruition, you know, and, and it it gave us another level of bonding through that experience um, because we also had to pitch and we had to figure out, okay, how do we pitch together? How do we pitch separate? What do those things look like? What are, what are each of us capable of? So, so going through that entire experience, um, it was a, it was a way for us to really, really figure out how to work with each other in those rooms and in those conversations. And um, I think for me now, <laughs> coming out of that lab, the one thing I know is like, hey, I just, I throw the ball up and I just watch him dunk it. It's nothing <laughs> else for me to do, really. <laughs> well, I'm just sorry you're not getting the full Sundance experience due to the COVID surge going on here as well as yeah. the rest of the world. But yeah. um, stay safe, stay healthy so we can see you at the for next sure. Sundance and the next Sundance and the next Sundance. For sure, for sure. Thank you so much. Victor Gabriel and Duran Jones on Hallelujah, a short making its debut at Sundance. And I have another short to share with you, The Panola Project. It's highlighting the heroic efforts of Dorothy Oliver to keep her small town of Panola, Alabama safe from COVID-19. Had a chance to speak with the filmmakers behind it, Rachel DeCruz and Jeremy Levine. This short film is uniquely timed considering we're still in the pandemic uh, Rachel and Jeremy and uh, Sundance affected by it. You won't be able to be here for the full Sundance experience. I'm sorry about that. But can you uh, just give us a bit of backstory about how you came to this topic and Miss Dorothy? Yeah, sure. So I, I do think there was a thought when we started this that we were kind of hoping our film would be somewhat irrelevant by now, but, but here we are. Um, I mean, we, we it was about a year ago that we started and you know, as we all know very well, it was just kind of a depressing time. We were, you know, we, we were dealing with the insurrection, you know, we finally had vaccines, but now it was hard, like there were, there were problems with getting people to actually take them. Um, and, and yeah, I think we were just looking for something that was better than sitting on our couch and reading depressing news. And so, um, so we were looking for some hope, we were looking for solutions, and we found, uh, or we, we just heard about this woman who was running a vaccination uh, campaign essentially out of this um, convenience store that she runs out of a mobile home, and we're like, we got to go check that out, and we drove down, we, we talked to her, we had this amazing conversation, we were immediately like blown away, and um, kind of that's that was the start of it for us. Here's some from the trailer of the Panola Project. We in this rural area got to fight for our life, you know, with this COVID going on. I mean, it changed everything. If we can't get the shots, we're gonna have sick folks. That's just the bottom line. Hey there, how you how doing? Yeah, we bring the vaccination to Panola. Will you take it? We gotta get these shots. Two or three people getting it ain't gonna help. Everybody gotta try to get vaccinated. Hey, how y'all doing? 
You doing all right? Yes, ma'am. You done had your shot? I just really had made my mind up to take it for real. I tell anybody, don't take no chances. That's Dorothy Oliver in The Panola Project, which is at Sundance. I'm talking with the filmmakers Rachel DeCruz and Jeremy Levine. In fact, in the Meet the Filmmaker video online at the Sundance Film Festival website, you say you're just had enough of doom scrolling, Rachel. You guys wanted to find something inspiring. And in a state with low vaccination rates, your film subject, your short film subject, has got her town 99% vaccinated. Yeah. She sure has. <laughs> um, you know, Dorothy is a relentless advocate. As you'll see when you watch the film, she just, she doesn't take no for an answer. But there was, you know, as we watched her and got to film her having conversations with her neighbors, it was just so clear the love and care and support um, that she wanted to be able to provide for her community, right? It all very much came from that place. And we watched her have conversations that she entered the conversation with such curiosity, such kind of compassion for people, regardless of where they were at, such patience. She always wanted to answer people's questions. She was never shaming, never judgmental, um, but she was also quite relentless, right? She was just kind of like, I'm gonna talk you through it until you land at the place where you're ready to go get the vaccine and we'll make a commitment to me. Um, and to us, it was just a really beautiful thing to get to witness and to be a part of. And your project also, the Panola Project, is what the film mm -hmm. is called, um, chronicles how an often overlooked rural black community came together in creative ways to survive. Do you think beyond the immediate subject matter of the film, your short film provides a window um, for the rest of the mm -hmm. country into a variety of circumstances and, and empowerment? I love that question so much. Yes, we do. You know, I think that... Um, the, it was so clear to us as we were filming just the deep lack of investment in Panola, right? And the deep lack of investment in most rural communities, right? But when we have um, conversations in the mainstream media about rural communities, they're often talking about rural white communities. And so it was really important to us to highlight how a rural black community is kind of grappling with the systemic barriers they're facing. And, you know, whether it's health, whether it's the economy, whether it's the environment, right? All of these issues are devastatingly impacting um, rural communities because they don't have the systems in place to be able to get resources, to be able to move nimbly and quickly. And that's where you see local leaders really stepping in to fill that role. Yeah. And, you know, I think when you look at, uh, you know, coming into to the story, everything in the news was all about like vaccine hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy. And that's, that's certainly real. But when we were going around with Dorothy as she was going door to door, trying to get people to uh, sign up to get a shot, it was also a huge issue. Just like it's 40, 40 uh, miles to the, the closest hospital. And, you know, a lot of people didn't have cars, didn't have proper transportation. And so there's these real uh, systemic barriers that, that, are, have always existed. And then when a crisis like COVID hits, it becomes just unmanageable and it becomes very obvious that we have, we have a lot of work to do here. I'm curious what you are working on next, the two of you are filmmakers um, working on other projects. Rachel, I understand you're the Associate Director of Advocacy at the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. Is filmmaking just the, a, a, another way for you to do that work and what's next? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I have always been really drawn to storytelling, to relationship building. You know, I kind of identify as an organizer and a storyteller at heart and have always thought that film is such a powerful medium to be able 
to convey experiences, to be able to talk about complicated issues like race and racism and how it's playing out. And so it's just been a true joy to get to partner with Jeremy on this project. And we are in the process of working on um, another feature length film, which is called Nine. And it kind of chronicles the journey of Gerald Hankerson, who is a black community leader based out of Washington state. He spent almost 23 years of his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit and was granted clemency in 2009. So the film is really chronicling his journey in the present as he fights to pass legislation that would reinstitute parole in Washington state, since it's one of the few states in the country that does not actually have parole right now. And he's also simultaneously working to get his father figure and mentor out of prison as well. And Jeremy, you're an Emmy award-winning filmmaker, co-founder of the Brooklyn Filmmakers Collective, and your films explore race in a society in active denial of its own past. Man, <laughs> finger. <Like topic>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but you know, when I look at box office returns, film seems to be maybe the one area where we can all see the same thing and have a conversation, Jeremy. Yeah, that's that's certainly the hope uh, is that we're able to kind of bridge some divides that we're able to write storytelling, filmmaking is an immersive experience that brings you into other people's experiences in such a visceral way. And, and so I think it's able, we're able to reach people in different ways in an emotional way to be like, imagine yourself in this situation, what would you do? Um, and, and so I think it's a really powerful tool to, to try to examine some of our unresolved legacies here. Um, you know, in addition to, to nine that I'm working on with Rachel, uh, I'm, I'm working on a film about an ex-white supremacist trying to build a new life um, and also kind of the long-term impacts of the family separation policy at the U.S.-Mexico border. So all these heavy subjects, but I do think, as you said, the more that we, right, film is a vehicle in which we can understand each other in, in new and important ways. Well, please keep Radioactive on your outreach list and come back when your your next projects are, are ready to go. And for our listeners that want to follow up and uh, see where your work leads, is there a website for one or both of you that we can suggest? Uh, sure. For, for the moment, I guess you can go to mine. It's jeremyslevine.com. Uh, and that has more information about Panola and Nine and all kinds of other good stuff there. Jeremy Levine and Rachel DeCruz, whose film The Panola Project is at Sundance this year. Sign up for your own Sundance account so that you can take advantage of the local screenings, which will be free. I'm Laura Jones. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, just send me an email. The email is radioactive at krcl.org. And that's where our archives live. We also have a mobile app that has the show in it, so you can listen when you want, where you want. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow on Radioactive here on KRCL Worldwide on krcl.org.